Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Bible Breakdown. Excited to be here with you today. As a reminder, we are in the period of biblical history in which the people of Judah are returning from exile. That started with the decree of King Cyrus. We talked a little bit about that last week. This, of course, return from exile necessitates that there was an exile before that. Uh, the people of Judah, Jerusalem, were taken to Babylon, uh, ending in about 586 BC with the last wave. And then this group will also return in waves. And we talked last week about the original decree that some of the people went then when that initially happened. We'll also talk about some guys like Ezra and Nehemiah who went in later waves of the return. Uh, this week, we are going to be talking about one of the prophetic books that is around the time of the return. It is toward the front half of the return, so more toward the first wave of the return from exile. We're going to be looking at prophecy from the book of Zechariah. We're very close to the end of your Bible. And we will be looking at, over the next few weeks, some more of the return era stories. Uh, we've got, like I said, Ezra, Nehemiah. We've got Esther coming up, which is always a great one. So we'll be talking about some of those. But this week in Zechariah, we're going to be talking about this prophet who is there during the front end of the return. So one of the first returners, uh, he prophesied in part to encourage the people after they were discouraged. So you see, here's how it worked. They were discouraged and they needed to be encouraged. Makes sense. In the process of rebuilding the temple is what they got discouraged in. They were rebuilding the temple like they were supposed to, but they got discouraged. So here comes Zechariah bringing the word of the Lord to encourage them. And part of this prophecy and part of this hope includes a vision for the distant future for God's people. So we are going to be in Zechariah chapter 13 today. There are going to be some things that you hear when I read that are very confusing. We will explain those things not to fear. That's what we're here for, is to understand what God's Word is telling us. But there are going to be some things that sound a little bit like, what? What is that? So starting off in Zechariah 13, we'll start off with verse 1. On that day, there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. So this is the introductory verse of this chapter, it kind of serves as a bridge from the end of chapter 12. So the end of chapter 12 has a paragraph that talks about grace and mercy by way of one who was pierced. Hmm, I wonder who that might refer to. Well, in John 19, 36 through 37, we get this. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. So once we get to the close to the end of the book of John, we get a very clear indication that chapter 12, and then in a lot of ways, we have to then carry that on into chapter 13, that Jesus is in view, this Messiah figure is in view, the one who would be pierced. Uh, I can imagine that for those reading the book of Zechariah the first time, they wouldn't have necessarily thought that one who is pierced would be the same as their Messiah, because again, most of the most of the people at that time didn't have a view of the Messiah sacrificing himself on their behalf. It was much more uh, awesome and, uh, well, what they would think would be awesome. It was much more them thinking like, oh, it's going to be like a military conquest kind of deal, right? 
So they would probably not have connected Zechariah 12 or therefore 13 into the Messiah and what their expectations were. However, we have the benefit of seeing scripture in its finished product. So we know that because scripture told us that's what the scripture was talking about. So it's great. It's always nice when scripture tells you what it's talking about. Because not anyone's opinion. It's God's word. So that's what we've got at the end of chapter 12 is this one who is pierced. And then like I read in verse one of chapter 13, talking about this day where there will be a fountain open for the house of David and to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And I think that there's a few reasons we kind of push this forward and think of it as a more forward-looking prophecy. First, on that day, that typically is uh, kind of a formula for more prophetic writings, and we're going to have a repeat of that in verse 2, actually. And then anytime we see something about totally being cleansed from sin and uncleanness, we know it's not happening in like the short-term future, right? So they, I think, should have should probably have known uh, that it wasn't going to be in the near future, but, you know, it's hard to tell when you're trying to put yourself in the shoes of a person who's hearing that in real time, what they would have thought, but we know, okay, it must be looking forward from that because to be cleansed from sin and uncleanness, that's quite a bit. And actually there's even more in this that I think gives us an indication that maybe it's even past the time of Jesus that part of this prophecy is looking at. So that is where we're at in chapter 13. Uh, woohoo Jesus already making his making his way through Zechariah. Uh, but as chapter 13 continues, this future promise of a cleansing from sin continues. So moving on to verse 2 of chapter 13 and then going through verse 6. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And also I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. And if anyone again prophesies, his father and mother who bore him will say to him, you shall not live for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies, but he will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive, but he will say, I'm no prophet. I'm a worker of the soil for a man sold me in my youth. And if one asks him, what are these wounds on your back? He will say the wounds I received in the house of my friends. So that was kind of what I was referring to as some things that there's a little like, what? What's going on? What's going on over here? A little tough to tackle. There's just this small matter of parents stabbing their kids a little and people getting beat up by their friends, which doesn't sound awesome. But don't worry, we will get there and we will understand what's going on here. But when you initially hear it, it's like, that sounds a little rough. I don't know if I like this future so much. But the point of these verses, starting in verse 2, we get the clarity that we need to help us understand what we're talking about here. There's a moment and time when idolatry will be removed from God's people at a future date. So here's how we understand then this thing about the prophet and the prophecies and all this good stuff. Okay, so he's saying here, Zechariah is saying on behalf of the Lord declaring the Lord of hosts. What God is telling us here is there's going to be a moment when idolatry is cut off from the land, including the prophets of those false prophets that would claim that idol. Okay. So these prophets that we're talking about are not uh, prophets from the Lord, but instead prophets that are not from the Lord. So if that is helpful to start off, that is good. But it's not just that the idolatry will be cut off, but even any prophets that would have held to the ideology of these idols or would have believed in these idols, it says they will be cut off as well. So these 
verses three through six are kind of meant in a hyperbolic way. So with the first one thinking about the father and the mother uh, who bore him will say to him, you shall not live for you speak lies. False prophets would be so wholly eliminated that the idea of the presence of one would be strange enough that the parents would even turn on their children. That's kind of the hyperbole that we're working with here. So he's saying, I, he says in verse two, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land. They will be remembered no more. I will also remove the prophets. So it's this promise that is so certain and so fully and wholly completed that the idea that if it's kind of like a, a little bit of a situation, like kind of like how Paul will give himself a little rhetorical question, right? Should we continue in sin so that grace may abound? It's a little bit like that. You know, suppose someone did again prophesy, it would be so out of place because the prophets and the idolatry has been so fully removed that it would cause a, a mother and father to turn against their child because it was that crazy that something like that would exist. So it's a little bit, it's actually quite a bit of hyperbole because it's saying this wouldn't happen. In fact, it would be so bizarre that this familial relationship between parents and children would be upended because it would be so crazy. Okay. So that's what it's saying about this parents kind of turning on their child and threatening to stab him when he prophesies. That's what's going on with that. It's to show how soundly idolatry and by connection, false prophecy have been removed from God's people at this future time. Okay. Hope that makes sense. Um, and then moving in to verse four through six and the prophet and the hairy cloak and the wounds, which again is a kind of, it's very similar in nature. Another kind of hyperbole, this idea that if there were to be a prophet in that day and there were to be somebody who is prophesying on behalf of an idol or a you know prophet that served an idol, they'd be so ashamed that they'd have nowhere to hide. And this thing about the wounds, if you remember um, from Elijah, when he battles the Baal prophets on Mount Carmel and he challenges them to a contest, we've got a Bible breakdown on that if you want a refresher. Uh, part of their calling out to Baal was to uh, mutilate themselves. So they would have had these wounds. And so that was not an uncommon practice, this self-mutilation uh, as part of uh, idol, idol worship in that time. It didn't always have to be that, but it wasn't uncommon. So this idea that somebody who was a prophet for an idol and had these wounds to show that they would be ashamed so ashamed to be associated with the false prophecy prophecy with those idols that they would make up an excuse that they got hurt at their friend's house so it's literally like this is the scene that's being painted uh, a person's like just walking down the road and they don't want anyone to know that they're a false prophet but somebody maybe on like the back of their arm like when they raise their arms above their head they're like hey what's that what's that kind of like scarring you've got on the back of your arm they would be so ashamed to be associated with idol worship that they would instead, I actually got, I received these wounds at my friend's house. So it's like a dog ate my homework kind of situation uh, is I don't want you to know the truth, which is that I was a prophet of a false God. So I'd, I'm just going to make up this excuse that my friends hurt me. So I, I hope that is some clarity, but again, it's, it's a this hyperbolic statement, this hyperbolic kind of story to make it clear how strange idol worship or prophecy would be in that time because God will have so fully removed it from the land. 
So that's really the whole point of all of those verses is this idolatry, this false prophecy is not going to be among God's people at this date and time that is in the future that is being referred to here by Zechariah, by the word of the Lord. Make that pretty good. Anybody ever blame their friend on a wound they received from false prophecy? I bet not. But uh, if that does happen, if somebody tells you they got some wounds that look like they were a part of idol worship and they blame it on their friends, just remember Zechariah 13 and be like, mm, I'm not so sure about that. Anyways, that's the idea. It's going to be totally foreign. won't be a part. It will be so strange. Like if anyone were associated, they'd be ashamed, which of course in Israel's history was not the case, right? There were plenty of times where there were false prophets in the land and that people didn't remove them. And there were plenty of times where you didn't have to be ashamed to be a prophet of Baal or of Asherah. It was part of what uh, the kings of Israel and sometimes Judah had led the people into. So it wasn't bizarre. But God's saying this is going to be a time when those things are totally gone. They're totally expelled from among God's people. So the language of these verses is a little shocking. But it's meant to be an encouragement to God's people, right? Idolatry is going to be done for, which, of course, idolatry had been the thorn in their side, the thorn that they regularly stuck in their own side throughout the history of the nation of Israel. And God's saying it is going to be taken away. So as we move then into verses 7 through 9, we see another couple of passages that may sound familiar to you. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire, and refine them as one refines silver, and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. So again, this verse, uh, the second part of the first verse may sound familiar to you. It's quoted in Matthew and Mark when the disciples all scatter after Jesus' death. This part, strike the shepherd, the sheep will be scattered, is part of uh, how Christ fulfills uh, some prophecy is one part. Again, this shows us clearly scripture telling us that this scripture is about Jesus when it comes up again, when we see it in the New Testament, always very helpful. Thank you, God, for doing that. Uh, this section, you may you may have noticed, sounds and is written kind of in more of a poetic nature and communicates that the arrival of this shepherd will include hurt and heartache. Okay. So there's this shepherd that seems kind of logically connected to the one who is pierced in chapter 12. It's not just an easy story, right? It says awake, O sword against my shepherd. This, this portion about, again, you think about one who's pierced, you think about a sword, not that Jesus was actually stabbed with a sword. It's not really about that. It's figurative language. But this idea that the, sh the shepherd, the man who stands next to me, this closeness that this shepherd has to the Lord, which of course we know that closeness is not just a temporal, but an eternal closeness that Jesus has with God the Father and God the Spirit. And recognizing that this shepherd who comes is going to be struck down, referring to Jesus' death on the cross again. You're, you're a, an initial reader of the book of Zechariah. You are probably not expecting that. But we, as people with the full canon of scripture, we know that that is what's going on here. Uh, and recognizing, too, that event where after Jesus' death, the disciples scattered. They were afraid. So this poetic 
section, it communicates, yeah, there's going to be this hurt, this heartache. And verse 8 talks about how there will be many who will not stay faithful to the Lord. And of course, we know that was true at the time of Jesus' advent, that many of the people, many of God's people, it says he came to his own, but his own did not accept him. There were many among God's people who did not accept that Jesus was the Son of God, that he was the Messiah. But there were plenty who did also, as we know, and it refers to this two-thirds and one-third. This two-thirds shall be cut off and perish. One-third shall be left alive. I don't think that we're meant to like start doing math or anything like that, but to recognize maybe even that like a majority of God's people would would not see the shepherd as the one sent by God and that maybe a, a smaller portion would, which I think in a lot of ways kind of tracks with what we see in scripture that the many turned against Jesus, the few stayed with him. And unfortunately, uh, well, I say unfortunately, it seems unfortunate at the on the surface, but those who do remain faithful, that one third, those people who did see Jesus and accept him, they undergo difficulty as God's people always have and always do and always will until God fully restores the world. Until we are with him in eternity, God's people will experience difficulty and hardship. But the purpose for all time, from the first sufferers to the last, is the same. The purpose is the same, that we would be refined and that we would have our faith tested so that it can be made strong. James 1.3, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. We see here to refine them as one refines silver, precious, to test them as gold is tested, precious materials that are refined. Even though they go through fire, it is for the purpose of refining. So the result for those that go through this refining is that those who call upon the name of the Lord will be answered. So even though it seems like for this minority, this one third that are left alive, they go through the fire, they go through this refining process, that they will call upon his name and be answered. God will say, they are my people. They will say, the Lord is my God. That's what the promise is. At the end of the refining, at the end of the testing of our faith, we're promised that God is going to remain faithful to us, that when we call to him, that he will answer, that he will hear us, that we will be his people, that he will be our God. That's the promise that even though we will go through the fire, we will be refined. That's what we have to look forward to at the end. So to sum up, sum up this chapter, which had a lot of confusing elements, God is telling his people about a day where this one who's pierced, where this fountain for the house of David, where this shepherd will come, that idolatry will cease, that false prophecy will will cease. It'll be so far removed that people will be freaked out by the fact that somebody would even dare speak the name of an idol or prophesy falsely. This idea that the shepherd, the one who's coming in that future day, which for us is a past day, that he'd be struck down, that many would not hold fast to him, but that some would, those who do, will be put through a refining process, but have as their and this promise that God will be our God, that we will be his people. So I think there's a couple of elements to this. There's this kind of far future where we think about, 
you know, idolatry looks different today, but we know that idolatry exists. Um, we know that we form idols for ourselves, right? They may not be made of, they may not be fashioned into the image of gods, but we have things that set us off track, get us off track from worshiping God that hold a place in our hearts greater than God does at times. So I think we can fairly confidently say, okay, we're not in a time when idolatry is totally cut off, that there's no one who speaks falsely on behalf of uh, the world, because that, of course, is true and will be true until a time that we really can't imagine. So I think part of this prophesies a time that is far distant, even distant for us, this time when God's kingdom will be fully established after the return of Jesus. And then we also see a little bit nearer term with this conversation about the shepherd being struck down, these people being put into the fire, being refined. So some of that is a little more near future. Uh, Of course, the shepherd being struck down has already happened, though we as people who hold fast to the shepherd, who hear the shepherd's voice, that that we know him, he knows us, we are still in that group that is refined and put into the fire, goes through trial and difficulty and testing. So there's a kind of more present, which was future for the original readers, a present that we look back on Jesus' death, but we, of course, as his followers, see the present implications of what's being shared here. But then we also have this future where we look toward like, wow, there's not going to be any idolatry. And really that holistically points us to a time too, where it's not, and we're not just talking about idols as the problem. We're talking about that's a time when we are no longer tempted toward anyone, but God himself. I think that's the hope that we can cling to. And as we seek to apply this passage, because, you know, if you just ran through Zechariah 13 real quick, you might be like, this is this is difficult to apply. I think we have a couple ways that we can, though. First, we do have a hope for the future, and it's not because of anything that we can do. It's because of Jesus that we have a hope for the future, where we can hope for a day when the things we struggle with, the things that vie for our attention, the things that draw us away from loving the Lord with our whole heart to having him number one in our hearts and our minds, that there will be a time when we won't have those distractions. That would be crazy to think that there's anything that could distract us from that. That's what I see as part of our hope in that first half of Zechariah 13, that there will be a day where the idea that something distracting us from being God's children, of worshiping him, of having him be number one for us, it'll just seem crazy, which is a good hope. Because there's a lot of times in our lives where he's not number one. Maybe even most of the time it feels like. It's hard to keep our hearts on the Lord fully because we are sinful and we're drawn this way and that. By many things in this life, we get distracted. But God is calling us to remain steadfast with him. And hope is paramount to being a follower of Jesus. We don't go through the Christian life without hope. If we do, we're missing it. Because if we think that this is the perfect life, that we've arrived to a perfect life, we're, we have a pretty small view of what a perfect life could be. We have a, an incredible life to be able to live this life with the hope of the future, with faith in Jesus, with salvation secured, to have the Holy Spirit. Those things are all incredible. We still hope for more because God's promised us more, not because he hasn't given us enough, but because he has promised us more. So if we think this is as good as it gets and we haven't read the whole Bible to see what eternity will be like to be in the presence of God, 
to be with him, to have our sin forgiven, to be in full community with God forever. That's part of our hope. And then second, we should expect difficult times. We should expect refining. We should expect testing. And we should be glad that God is refining us. I don't know about you. Personal opinion, I do not like being refined. It is difficult. It is uncomfortable. It makes me feel things that are not necessarily good. It makes me realize how finite I am, how uh, a work in progress I am, how weak I am, things like that. I don't, I don't like the feeling of being refined. And I would wager that you probably don't either. But we should expect difficult times and we should angle our hearts to be glad that God is refining us. Just like James said, he says right before I, the verse I read in chapter one, verse three, he says, consider it all joy when you encounter trials of various kinds. You've probably heard that a million times and probably thought that sounds really good when I'm not actually going through a trial, right? But that's what we're called to is to have this attitude that, no, this is, this is for my good, that God is not doing this because he is cruel. He is not doing this because he is not paying attention. Uh, he is allowing this because I will be refined through this. And it is better for us to grow into the image of Christ, to reflect Christ more accurately than it is for us to be comfortable. Our idea of good and what we our life should be like, uh, we only want good things to happen to us and to only feel good feelings because those are the comfortable ones. The unfortunate truth this side of heaven is that our growth comes through those uncomfortable moments, those painful moments. And God will allow those in our lives so that we can grow more to reflect Jesus because bringing him glory is the best way we can use our life, even if it's not what we would choose for ourselves. So we have to expect difficulties, expect trials, expect testing, and hopefully our hearts, we gradually grow to look at those moments, to recognize it when we're in the midst of them and not just after them once it's already over, but to even in the midst of them to be like, I know this is a trial. I know this is a testing, but I know this is for my good. So what's the, what's the way that I get through this? I walk through this in a way that's faithful to who God is so that I can be grown so that he can be glorified because that's the deal. That's the deal. The, the deal that we would choose for ourselves, the easy way, at the end of the day, it's not getting us where we need to be. Where we need to be is in a place where we can reflect Jesus more accurately in our lives. And that's a lifelong pursuit. And we won't ever get there to where we are fully doing that perfectly on this side of heaven. But that is one of the ways that God is glorified, taking imperfect people like us and showing us grace. That shows his character, how wonderful he is. And as we grow and as we make choices that the world doesn't make, but that God calls us to make, we reflect on him who he is. We have the awesome opportunity in the midst of all of these things that we go through to give glory to God. And as we do that, we can rest assured that even though this life is difficult, even though it is tough, even though the refining hurts, we have this hope where one day all those things are going to be made right, that we will be his people and he will be our God. Thank you.